Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Two of my favorite books of the last, I don't know, I guess it's 10 years, maybe 12 years. The SNL Oral History, ESPN Oral History, both written by James Andrew Miller. He has a new book out now about CAA powerhouse it's called it's on, already on top i think of the bestseller list talked to us for about 40 minutes a lot about the caa book which i really liked uh, but he got into espn as well and there's a lot of stuff to pick through there as well good conversation with james andrew miller when you the first book you wrote was the senate book is that correct correct and, and i apologize I, I read the snl book loved it read the espn book loved it and just finished this i blew through this book this is right in my wheelhouse loved it i apologize i haven't read that book is that book also in oral history format, or is it not? No, and uh, you're forgiven. I wrote it when I was a baby, and, yeah. uh, you know, uh, it, was, it was not the oral history format. What is appeal to you? When did, when did it first trigger for you uh, when you're doing SNL and you're researching it to say, you know what, let's, let's make this oral history, which has become, I think, more popular and is such a readable format. You know, it's like candy. Is it because of the size of personalities you're dealing with, say, in an SL, SNL book? You know, it's an interesting question. I love the oral history format, and I think that one of the things that I realized with the, with, you know, Live from New York was that you're dealing with these people who are just so unique. When you talk to Bill Murray, when you talk to Tina Fey, Will Ferrell, I mean, the list goes on and on and on. I'm sorry, but put Hemingway in front of a keyboard, and he won't be able to capture them in a way that they can reveal themselves to the readers, uh, you know, and I know there, there are people, you know, who, who say sometimes, oh, well, oral history, you know, the, the writer is not making up their, you know, I'm not making up their mind for the reader. It seems, like, like, that's what, it seems like that's what James Stewart was saying in the, the review I read yeah, in the Times, yeah. But that's okay, man. It's like, yeah. don't go to a Japanese restaurant and order matzo ball soup. Right. I mean, right. this is... This is some oral history. This is what I do. I like it. I like. I think that the transparency between, you know, uh, the the people who are speaking, uh, and the way that they reveal themselves, and the way that they even, I swear to God, even in the way they form sentences, even in the way they tell stories. I mean, for the ESPN book, like I sit down, with Chris Berman, the first thing he says to me is, "I was born on, uh, you know, uh, John Wilkes Booth's birthday." Like, who, like, I mean, it's such an interesting way to talk. And, I mean, to, for Bill Murray to talk about the last time he saw Gilda Radner and for, you know, Stuart Scott to talk about how he got, I mean, all these things that have happened in the books, and particularly this one, because this one was by far the hardest. Um, so to have these people talking directly, particularly agents who aren't supposed to be talking about themselves, you know, they're supposed to be talking about the clients. I just... I just I love oral history. Oh, so do I. But is there was there part of you when you when you started tackling this book where it's easy to uh, to, to to write about Bill Murray and have Bill Murray talk oral history or Aykroyd or Lorne Michaels 
or uh, Dan Patrick or Olbermann or all these characters from the first two books or the last two books, Simmons. We know all these people. There are so many different agents who I did, and I, you know, knew a little bit about CAA through the stuff that had been written in the '80s, and obviously the Stewart book, and then Treat Williams in the in the late shift. But a lot of these characters I don't know. So is it then harder to introduce them that way? Because then I'm reading people I'm not sure who they are. Does that make sense? Right. Hey, you know what? I totally get it. Here's the deal, which is that I wanted, in addition to all the celebrities in the book, right, and you know, people that you may you know n- know just from because they were oversized personalities like. Uh, and they're moguls and like David Geffen and Michael Eisner and this one and that one. They're all in there. But I think when it came down to the agents, I, here's, here's a job that a lot of people don't understand, mm-hmm. and they rarely talk about themselves. So if I'm writing a book about Hollywood over the past 40 years, which ostensibly this book is, I felt like it was my obligation almost to talk to these agents and to capture what they're like as well. And, um, you know, I, I've been really pleased since the book came out that people said, like, I, I really didn't know what they did or I just I didn't know what kind of person they are. And, you know, some some people think that agents are just these guys in black suits uh, and literally just guys who beat the crap out of people and get a good deal and, you know, call their client and brag. Um, it's much more nuanced than that. It's much more evolved than that. And as a result, uh, you know, I just I think that we're trying to like peel back the onion in a whole different culture. It's it's a, a, first of all, it's a great book. Powerhouse is a great book, and I'm fascinated. Oh, the star the star of the book is obviously Ovitz. I mean, there's there's no way around it. And like I said, I first became aware of Ovitz probably like most people do with all this stuff was the Bill Carter book, and then the TV movie. Like I said, with Treat Williams playing him, I couldn't figure out reading it. And I guess that's maybe to your credit. I don't know if you like Ovitz or if you don't like Ovitz when I'm reading it because there's so many the story to me that's almost most interesting about Ovitz in a way is and, and I apologize is the agent who first tells a story about uh, having Zemeckis direct Back to the Future 3 and then Ovitz tells the next story and they are in complete contrast their memory of the situation so I'm yeah. wondering is Ovitz a guy who is just comfortable lying not telling the truth I don't. Th- I don't think he's. Uh, I don't. I don't think he's comfortable lying. I don't even think he thinks he's lying um, if he's saying something that's at odds with somebody else. I mean, for me as a writer, he's an unbelievable character to capture in a book. First of all, he doesn't. He's not somebody who typically cooperates. So right. I was really, really pleased. I mean, you know, if you're going to do a 40-year history of Hollywood and CA in particular. Um, you know, uh, I would say Michael Ovitz is probably, you know, one of the necessities. And I was, you know, prepared to do it without his cooperation, but I was really glad he did. I, I mean, look, he is, um, you know, those surveys that say 99 out of 100 people said, well, he's that 100th. He's the outlier. He's the guy who, you know, everybody says vanilla and he's the guy who says chocolate. So as a result, there is just a different way of looking at things. There's just constantly uh, a different it's almost like, you know, the whole world's a, you know, a PC and he's, 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 a, uh, he, he's a Mac. Like he's speaking a different language um, for, for good and for bad. And, and I think that as a result, um, particularly his story was so Shakespearean, uh, you know, I, I just I couldn't, couldn't resist having him in the book. Well, I mean, the way he crashed is 
kind of unbelievable. I mean, he was, you could easily make the case the most powerful guy. He was ranked number one a couple of times in these polls in Hollywood for, you know, almost a decade. And then it all kind of ended in this flash. And then he sort of disappeared from, from public eye. So how cool is it, though, this idea? I mentioned in the preface that, you know, somebody who is a really good agent for people like Robert Redford and Paul Newman and, you know, uh, uh, unbelievable Tom Cruise and Martin Scorsese is like a lousy agent for himself. Right. And I think that that's like, you know, one of those, uh, again, delicious kind of threads running through this book, which is that these people spend their days taking care of other people. And when it comes to taking care of themselves, they sometimes are not up to the challenge. They're not equal to the challenge. And I think that one of the things that happened to Michael Ovitz after he left CA in 1995 was that he was so aware of certain things and so unaware of other things, particularly, you know, his own on his own watch, on his own schedule, on his own compass, that um, it made for a really, really difficult. Um, post-CA world for him. What's kind of incredible is, you know, as, a, as somebody who grew up in the 80s, I was a kid growing up in the 80s, and my favorite movies, if you, you know, asked me to list four or five of them, you know, Rayman would be on that list for sure, Ghostbusters would be on the list for sure, Tootsie would be on that list for sure. These are the movies that would not have happened uh, without CAA. I mean, you, you know, so that's, I think, maybe that's, I'm, I'm speaking for you here, but when you sat down and you started thinking about your next book subject, just the power of what CAA was able to do, just starting in movies, first of all, but then broadening out, that must have been a factor because it's kind of an untold story about a place that was incredibly uh, powerful for, you know, years and years and years, continues to be. Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, look, the, the short ver- version was, uh, everybody knows what, the initials SNL mean. Everybody mm-hmm. knows what ESPN, they're worldwide. And what I wanted to do this time with CA is I wanted to kind of like outside of Hollywood introduce a brand to people and to say to them, look, these three initials, you may not know them, but they're part of your world much more than you realize. Like, just like you're saying, from your favorite movies to ER to like, like all these unbelievable TV shows, you know. Bruce Springsteen and Katy Perry in One Direction, and even like the Coca-Cola polar bear commercials. Right. Chipotle and, and I, yeah, it's crazy. But was right? it part I mean, of you? Was it part of you? I mean, the ESPN book was number one, New York Times bestseller. Was it part of you going in that was worried? What if I write this book? Uh, it could be great, but some people, there's a certain group that just won't give a shit. I mean, people care about ESPN. People care about SNL. They might not care about a bunch of agents. Was that ever a fear? I think that uh, what I said to my agent Mm -hmm. when I told him I wanted to do this book is, look, you know, uh, this is not going to jump out to number one because outside of Hollywood, you know, people may not know it, but it's okay because I want to tell the story anyway. I I can't, you know, it's very hard to spend three years, and I interviewed over 500 people, um, you know, doing something and just thinking about, Okay, is this going to be number one? Or is, I mean, I was right. thrilled that you know, in its first week, it hit the New York Times bestseller list, and you know, quite frankly, that was uh, you know that that that's a that's a blessing as far as I'm concerned. I'm enormously grateful. Uh, you know, whether it's number one or number ten or number whatever, I, I mean, that's not really the goal of this book. The goal was to really kind of jump into the deep end of the pool of Hollywood and to give people an idea of 
you know, what's been going on in Hollywood over the last 40 years through the prism of CA and to capture what goes on behind the curtain. So people, you know, in Kansas and Florida and everything else uh, have, a, have a sense of, uh, you know, of what it's like. And, and by the way, why they should care about it, why, why it matters to them. I could be I could be wrong about this. Maybe you can correct me if you know it. I don't think I've ever seen Tom Cruise quoted in a book before. I could be wrong, but you talked to him, you know, semi extensively. I guess uh, two questions. One is how does uh, Jim Miller sit down with Tom Cruise or talk to him on the phone? Uh, number two, how long was that conversation? Was it forty five minutes? Was it a couple of times? How how, how does that work? Uh, look, I I think you're. I, I've been told at least that you're right in terms of Tom not cooperating with the book before. I think that um, one of the things that happens is, um, you know, people, and this was true with other celebrities, they may be fans of the other books um, or know something, maybe wrote for Vanity Fair or New York Times, and there's an element of trust. Uh, I think when they hear other people who are cooperating, that is further wind um, at, uh, at, at my back. I mean, I was hoping to... Um, see Tom in person and it kind of, you know, there was months that went by and finally, look, I mean, we wound up talking on the phone, I think a couple times and it just, I'm happy to get him on the phone if that's, you know, I'd rather have the bird in the hand mm-hmm. rather than keep on waiting to, for that moment to sit down uh, because it may never come with somebody like that. I mean, um, I, you know, I do most of my interviews in, in, in person, but I was just thrilled Um you know, that he gave me, you know, the time that he did. And it's kind of interesting, right? I mean, he's crashing on Sean Penn's couch when right. he's 19. Yeah. And, like, you know, Sean Penn says you got to check these people out at CA. So, I, you know, I, I was I was really, um, yeah, I was much appreciated. Well, you, don't, you know, you don't think of it. I mean, I'm a kid or now and I'm watching. I don't think of it. You think you think a movie like Ray Man just shows up fully formed and arrived, but it's supposed to be Sidney Pollack directing. Levinson kind of maneuvers his way in with Ovitz. And Paula Wagner, who is Cruz's agent forever, says originally it's supposed to be Hoffman and Nicholson. Paula Wagner says, well, wait a minute. Let's have Cruz be, you know, so CAA plays a massive role. Ray Man does not happen without CAA. Rain Man doesn't happen. There's tons of other movies that don't happen. There's tons of, I mean, literally, I loved the idea when I found out. And he just thought, you know, ER is like a movie script right. sitting in a CAA script vault until uh, a CAA agent pulls it out and starts reading it and says, wait a second, what about a TV show out of this? I mean, on and on and on and on and on. And, uh, I mean, it was just, I, you know, I, I met with Mick Fleetwood, and, you know, they were at ICM, another agency, and when they when uh, their agent Tom Ross came came over to see it, he's like, "Of course we're going to come, man." The the guy the guy let us rehearse when we did had no money in the ICM basement. He he was the one who gave, who 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 pushed us to you know hire and support us when we wanted to hire uh, Lindsay and Christine McVeigh. I mean, it's like uh, it's just these great stories that. I don't know. Just uh, you know, I try and be a fan too. You know, a reader too. Mm-hmm. When I'm doing these books, like what what is you know what's blown me away? What's what's uh, interesting and new? And uh, it was it was just a lot of fun. I'm interested. It's interesting you mentioned this earlier. So you would have been willing to go forward and write an oral history CAA book if you had had zero cooperation from Ovitz. That seems to be that's almost like writing an SNL book without. Lauren Michaels talking. It seems difficult to I'll, do. I'll, I'll give you one better than that, just to show you how reckless and suicidal I can be. <laughs> um, 
I signed the deal without even telling CAA. Jesus. And as a result, they when I told them, they said, "Well, we, we're not going to cooperate. We don't we don't cooperate with books, and we wish, uh, you know, we wish you had asked us beforehand uh, before signing that contract because uh, it's not going to happen." Now I was really pleased that they changed their mind and they did cooperate um, because they had never cooperated before. But uh, I have to tell you. Um, you know, it, it, I'm not saying, look, I'm not saving the world here or curing cancer, but it is a weird thing to put your uh, signature on a contract, uh, you know, that's going to be a very visible book, and you have no idea if anybody um, is going to talk to you. And the only thing you really know is that people like Ovitz and places and CA itself um, have, have notoriously said no. So, yeah, I guess I, it was a kind of a big roll of the dice for somebody who has three kids. <laughs> when you sit down with a guy like Ovitz, and I'm sure you spent a lot of time with him, seems like you did, did you feel like he was trying to manipulate you at all? Did you feel like he was trying to charm you, do what he did over the years to so many people? Yeah, we spent two and a half years together. And, um, you know, I mean, look, once an agent, always an agent. I mean, do I think that he had uh, an agenda um, sure. I think his agenda was, you know, if a book that is going to be written about the history of a company that uh, I co-founded, I-, I wanted to match my version of reality as much as possible. And uh, I think he was incredibly respectful, though, of my process um, because, uh, you know, he didn't he didn't ask to uh, read what others were saying. I, I, I you know, I, I did church and state. I kind of separated that. There was a, uh, you know, there was a wall between that. It wasn't like I was running to him every time and saying, oh, my gosh, you know, Billy Smith just said this about you. What do you think about that? Um, you know, I, that, that's not the way I, I operate. And he was very respectful of that because I'm sure he was, you know, damn curious. But, um you know, these these books take on kind of lives of their own, and each one is a different kind of journey. Uh, this one was by far the most difficult, but um, you know, in some ways, uh, it's it's. I mean, I I love them all, but I'm saying them. In some ways, it's the most gratifying because it it really was the highest part to jump over. Well, it seems like it would be like the ESPN book. If you write the ESPN book. It seems like it's kind of easy to to format, even the oral history format. You kind of know the beginning, you know the middle, the you know the end. SNL, it's really easy, kind of year by year by year by year. I was thinking of this when I was reading your book. It must be tougher when you're editing the oral history part, making things work, sort of uh, having a linear form. It must be difficult to figure out which spot goes where when you're doing this book. I would think I could be wrong. The most difficult of any of the three books from that aspect. Oh, without a doubt, without a doubt. In fact. You know, to your point, um, I do an outline before each book, and the outline for the SNL book um, that I did beforehand kind of mirrored what what came out. And in ESPN, there were a few, uh, you know, important uh, detours that I had to do as I, my, reco- my, my reporting uncovered more things, and I had to get into um, this and that and this that I didn't anticipate because – Quite frankly, it had never been reported before, so I, I really had to, like, once I found it, I, I couldn't have known it beforehand. With the CA book, um, it, you know, I was constantly redoing, constantly redoing the outline. And, in fact, truth be told, during the last year, I basically gave up on the outline. You know, I just, I just had to go 
I had to go where I thought I, I had to go. And, um, you know, particularly like with something like CA Sports, which, you know, through my reporting, I was able to uh, report that in t- 2015, CA Sports made more money than CA Movies. Ah, that's wild. That is wild. I mean, I could not. There could, by the way, there were people in the building who didn't know that. Yeah, that, that's competition. It's hard to believe, isn't it? Right. So all of a sudden, once I start to realize this, I, I think to myself, well, I'm going to have to spend a little bit more time on CA Sports than I realized because I have to explain how this came to happen. I had to trace the pedigree of that enormous growth, and I have to explain the kind of business they were building. So, you know, things like that happen. And, I, I mean, look, it's fun. I mean, particularly when you're you know, discovering new things and you're reporting things that hadn't been reported before and you're getting people like, you know, the private equity guys who now basically uh, have a controlling interest in, say, to talk because they they, they're not, you know, particularly uh, – fond of, uh, of talking. Uh, so uh, all that was part of the journey. You know, when you read these books, these oral history books, even the last three years, you can always line up the ones, the guys who look better and the women look better and look worse uh, coming out of the book. For me, the one of the big surprises, and again, as a child of the 80s and 90s, I, I love this guy, is Stallone. Stallone comes across great in this book. Oh, my God. I'm so glad you said that because guess what? He, I was asked the other day, I was on TV, like, you know, what are one of the, you know, Best surprise of I was like, Sylvester Stallone. I mean, first of all, people forget that this guy, aside from Muhammad Ali, was the biggest well, thing on the planet. Well, you tell the in story fact, in the book about, about where uh, you're in Kenya. Ron no. Meyer tells the story yeah. about being like in Thailand right, right, or right, something, right. you know, Rambo 2 locations, and they're, uh, they're walking along this riverbank in the middle of nowhere. There's not a TV, there's no any culture in sight, and people on the other side of the river are chanting, Rocky, Rocky, Rocky. I mean, Ron said when he would have when he would go out to dinner with Stallone, they, sometimes you know the, the the blocks would be closed. I, I mean, I mean when they came out. Well, and, in the summer, you know, back then so, you write it. You know, you have. I think Joel Silver's talking about it. Back in the summer in the '80s, it was okay. Here's a block in the summer for in '83 for Sly, in '84, in '85, in '86, and you were done. Isn't that cool? Yeah. Well, it's you know he was the first one. I think. He and Schwarzenegger were the first guys to do it. But you can't have a – it's one of the misperceptions about Stallone because he got famous for playing kind of a marble mouth sort of boxing dummy. You can't have the kind of career he's had for 40 years still be a star and not be smart. I, I don't think it's possible. But wait a second. How about the idea that when I asked him about what it was like when Ron – Yeah, Myra right, the poem, said, yeah, yeah. You know, he said, I'm going to go to Universal. Like the, He tells me how they both wound up crying, and then afterwards – he wrote Ron a poem. Right, right, I mean, right. if I, like seriously, if you were studio chief and I wrote that in a screenplay and I gave it to you, you nah, come back to me, you got to Come on. Like you're pushing it a little bit too much. Right. Okay? You're, you're just putting, come on. Sylvester Stallone writing a poem, let's, let's cut it out. You, you talked to Cruz, Stallone, Kidman, uh, Jennifer Lopez, Sarah Jessica Parker. I mean, a whole bunch of, you know, uh, Hanks. Was there a couple of, was there a star or a star or two that you weren't able to land that you thought was kind of, were, were essential to, to put this book together? Was there one guy you said, shit, I really wish I was able to land that guy, from a star perspective? Um, not, not really. No? I mean, I would have, I think it was more about that I would have loved to have interviewed uh, Mike Nichols and Paul Newman, both of right. whom were deceased. I think more of that was more. You didn't talk, and you didn't talk to Redford, right? No, I didn't talk to Redford. You tried? And uh, I think, you know, I was... I look. I have a lot of respect for Robert Redford, and I was. I talked to several people close to him, and that was one of those decisions where I like literally did not even 
do a, a, a request because I, by the time I heard from several people close to him that this, that era and, you know, that um, what he went through with um, over those years there was just something that he really, really didn't want to talk about. So I didn't want to, uh, I don't know, I just, I, I wanted to respect him and respect that and not put him in that kind of position. You know, that said, when I got together with Barbara Streisand, she was like, I don't like talking to her. I was like, come on, come on, give me a couple. Like, and she was terrific. You know, I mean, she was, and uh, I, w- I only wish I could have parenthetically included her, like, mannerisms and her facial expressions and her hand gestures and stuff like that because she's, uh, she, she really is uh, amazing. What is your? I'll just transition here uh, quick as we let you go. I mean, I, you wrote the ESPN book. We do a lot of sports media stuff on our show. What is your thought right now on the current state of ESPN? It's funny. We were doing the radio show this morning, and I'm watching uh, as I do, you know, without sound. And it seems to me now what SportsCenter continues to try to do is build these personalities who really aren't funny, these personalities. They're trying to do what they did 20 years ago. And it's just not working. Something just seems forced right now when I'm watching Sports Center, for example, particularly in the morning. Well, you know, the problem is that a lot of it isn't news to you. True, I mean, that's if true. You're like me. I mean, I'm getting everything on my phone as soon as I wake up. I'm getting scores after every three innings of my favorite baseball teams on my phone. I'm getting. I can watch the highlights on my phone. So it's it's value proposition to you and to many others is so different. You know, uh, when I was writing the ESPN book and I was really drilling down, like, on the Dan and Keith days, and uh, do you know that they used to go to a commercial and say, when we come back, we're going to tell you what happened with the Giants and the Padres last night, you know, tonight. It's like, can you imagine that oh, now? No, you, like, right. You'd be watching a highlight with, with, uh, with Kilborn doing a, you know, a Warriors-Kings highlight, and you had some suspense. You're like, well, who won this game? Oh, it was a mystery. It was fantastic. But they, but, there's just there's no suspense. But I do, no feel, anymore. I do feel like they, and, and when you get older, maybe you do this, but I do, I'm watching ESPN today in the morning and at night, and I don't see Patrick's and Obermans and Kilborns and Eisen's. I don't see those, that next generation breaking out like this generation did. Is that, is that a fair assessment? Well, they're not trying to do it, which I think, you know, quite frankly, um, look, there's a lot of smart people over there, but I personally think that the way that we had the personalities, even... Bob Lee and Charlie Steiner and Robin Roberts at 6.30 and Keith and Dan, obviously, and Craig and Eisen and all those people that you just mentioned. You know, I think that the sports center should be almost like Jimmy Fallon in the sense that there's a personality that you want to hang out with and you're going to get the scores and, you know, but you'll also get really great analysis that you can't maybe get on your phone. And that personality is someone you want to hang out with. I mean, what John Stewart did for politics um, there's got to be a John Stewart out there who can do that for sports and with sports. And, you know, if you do that, I think people are going to watch. But if it's um, people that uh, you don't particularly know and don't have any outsized personalities um, and they're delivering information that you already know, then I'm, I'm not sure that that's compelling enough in today's you know, uh, world with so many different options. Is there a chance that ESPN, and this is kind of my theory on this, ESPN says, you know what, that's that's a good idea, Jim. That's not a bad idea. But you know what, we'd rather just kind of keep it safe, 
stay in the fairway, and you know what? We might lose a couple of subscribers a year. It's true. We're losing a little bit of money. But the average fan, because you know, as you know, in New England, people are so bullshit at ESPN over the whole deflategate thing. But argument's been the whole time, well, you're going to watch Monday Night Football? You're going to watch the Masters? You're going to watch the Rose Bowl? Of course you are. ESPN's not going to go, not, they're not going to go anywhere. It's going to continue to be a complete cash cow. Oh, yeah. Well, listen, that that's a whole different thing. Now we're conflating, you know, one of the things that John Skipper did really, really well. Yeah, live TV, right? Live TV yeah. with, uh, you know, programming TV like like SportsCenter. And uh, they got, when it comes to live TV, they got a pretty big moot. Yeah, it's, it's insane. And the money they're still spending on these things. Although, if you look at it now, I think I might have read, you maybe tweeted this somewhere else. All their deals right now are, are they're signed up forever for all these guys. I mean, they got they got Monday Night Football, they have baseball, they have the Rose Bowl, they have all these things lined up for the next six seven years. Yes, I mean he went on a on a huge spending spree, and you know, quite frankly, it's almost impossible to uh, think of you know a way of like literally going toe to toe with them and trying to to win. I think that you know. Uh, NBC and other, they figured out that they don't necessarily have to go toe to toe to win, i.e., make money and and still have a thriving, um, you know, a thriving sports enterprise. What is your uh, What is your take? I, I know you like him. I heard you on this podcast a couple of days ago, and you've written about him a lot. What's your take so far on Simmons' uh, TV show and The Ringer? Yeah, I mean, look, I I'm very uh, I did not review it, you know, uh, right away. I'm a big builder. I, I'm a big belief in in building things and giving people a chance to, uh, you know, get settled. And I mean, one of the things that I can tell from the TV show already is that they're, uh, you know, figuring things out and trying to uh, see what really works for them, let alone the viewer. Um, the Ringer, you know, there's there's just a bunch of really, really talented people there. I mean, they didn't have the ESPN platform to launch it. Uh, I mean, Bill's name is pretty damn big, though. So, um, I mean, you, you, you can't bet against them. Do you think in, our, in, in, in my lifetime, say, the next 20 years, do you think you're ever going to see a viable challenger to ESPN? Fox Sports 1, is, it's not going to happen. I, I think we know that. CNN tried years ago. It didn't work. Is ESPN just too big that it'll never be challenged? I mean, legitimately challenged. Well, see, I guess that's what I mean, which is um, what does challenge mean? Because if you're just trying to create, you know, another sports entity that has probably a $50 billion valuation to it, then, you know, forget it. Well, challenge no, is this. Challenges, challenges say, like, so I do a, a morning talk, a sports talk show here at EEI in Boston. A challenge would be instead of ESPN being the default thing when I walk in in the morning or the default thing at the gym or when I go home to flip on SportsCenter, to have that second option in my head. To me, you know, Fox Sports 1 in three years, I think it's been around now, has not presented that alternative yet. No. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think that's true. And I think that, uh, I mean, look, though, I mean, NBC had it with the Olympics. Uh, yeah. You know, they have it every two years with the Olympics. And I think that they have it on Sunday night. I think Fox has it, and CBS has it on Sunday morning. I just on a daily thing. I mean, look, obviously, it's one of the things Jamie Harwich is trying to engineer now, bringing Skip Bayless over and others um, to have that kind of provocative quest- conversations in the morning. So you turn on the you know TV in the morning, and you're going to turn into Fox. I mean, look, if he's successful with that, then that will happen only because I don't think 
ESPN right now is going to, uh, outside of, you know, Stephen A. and Max, uh, you know, they, they, they don't have a lot to, to combat that. It's just a question of whether he can be as successful with it um, over there. And, God, given the money that um, is at stake, it's it's a pretty interesting thing to watch. You know, what's pretty wild is you wrote the SNL book, which was great. Actually, it's my favorite one. Your three books. I liked all three, but I love the SNL one. The ESPN one, like I said, I really enjoyed, too. You could almost write, and maybe will, you could almost write, new complete books. I know I think you updated the SNL one, but you could almost write new complete books about where you left off at the end of those two books to today. Yes, it's actually true. <laughs> I mean, it's, but I mean there's been so much drama at both places, particularly I think at ESPN. You could write you could write 400 pages today on the last 3 years of ESPN. Um, I think that's very true. Am I giving you a is this is this sound, sound familiar to you this idea or no? Uh, yes, uh, a lot of okay. people are. Uh, yeah, I'm sure. Uh, are, are, have been. Is that, that next? Is next. that is that next for you or no? Uh, you know, I can't really talk about it right now, but yeah. uh, you know, um, but you know, there's always something going on. How about for a quick SNL question? And I don't know if you still talk to him, if if you deal with him at all. How much longer do you think Lauren Michaels keeps doing this? Uh, let's see. What's forever? Really? <laughs> I just I can't. I just, I don't know, call me crazy, but I just, I'm just not, I can't imagine the day when, like, Lauren just says, forget it. Uh, I don't know. I just don't, I, I don't see it. I mean, Lord willing, he stays uh, healthy, and, uh, you know, he's certainly um, vibrant, and there's, I don't think there's anybody out there right now, or has been for a while, that could take his place. Um, yeah, I don't know. I think that this is... Uh, this is uh, this is going to be uh, it's going to continue for quite a while. You formed a pretty good relationship, at least through those two books, with with Murray. It seems like you and Murray's another guy who never talks. You've gotten Murray to talk extensively now in two of these books. He's the he's the best. He's the best. Um, I think I said to somebody the other day. I said, like literally anywhere in the world, if you were uh, having a wedding and you want you you could pick one person to give the toast at your wedding. I don't even know who number two is. Bill Bill Murray is like, you know, he's got to be the the person that you know. It's just he's he's really unbelievable, and I feel really really fortunate that uh, you know he talked. Well, the book is powerhouse. It's a look at at CA. It's a great book. Uh, pick it up. It's doing fantastic. I'm not surprised to hear that, uh, Jim. I really appreciate you taking some time uh, out here to talk about it. And good luck and good luck with the next book, which I hope we'll be hearing about soon. Hey, thanks, man. Thanks All right, thanks time. a lot, Jim. All right, thanks as always for listening to the Enough About Me podcast. If you want more podcasts like this with guests like Artie Lang, where, who else is going to have Artie Lang and fucking Bob Ryan on the same podcast or David Portnoy and uh, John Tomasi? If you want to listen to podcasts like this, you go to iTunes, Stitcher, you go to WI.com, you go to the mobile app. When you go to iTunes, leave a rating, leave a review, and subscribe. That's going to help us out a lot. If you want more of these, leave a rating, leave a review, and subscribe. Make sure you do that for me. That is a command. Now do it. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.